0: morning to you all, both my visible audience and my invisible audience. The last time I spoke here was Easter Sunday and there was like 12 of us in this building and today I'm guessing over 100, maybe 120. So to, whether you're visible to me or invisible to me, it is a privilege to be here and to kick off this series on the book of Ephesians. The theme that the elders have given me today is Together in Christ, the first 14 verses in the book of Ephesians, and this actually quite a frightful assignment for me, because the first 14 verses are so profound and so deep, and I've been given so little time to talk about it, that it's like, what on earth do I say that would be meaningful? And so my goal today is... If I can portray a sense of awe of what the Trinity has done for us from these 14 verses, I feel that I will have succeeded in my task. So the introduction, you have a, uh, an insert for those of you who are here and online. You can download it of my outline. The first two verses of Ephesians give us the introduction. And it says, I'm using the NIV version. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this two verse introduction to the book of Ephesians plus our text today, makes three introductory points. The first is the writer of this book, and of course, he introduces himself as Paul, an apostle. Secondly, we have the readers of the book of Ephesians. And the readers are the saints at Ephesus. And I appreciate the introduction that was given earlier by Glenn on Ephesus. Before I became a missionary, as a pastor here in Alberta, and I took a tour called The Footsteps of St. Paul. And we went through Turkey, Syria, Jordan, Israel, and Greece, going specifically to the places where Paul went. And the highlight of those five countries for me was Ephesus. And the reason why walking through the ancient city of Ephesus was such a highlight for me as as compared to some of the other places is because in the other places you'll have a ruin of this or a ruin of that, but between the two ruins there's a modern house. So it doesn't give you a sense of what it was like way back when. But the city of Ephesus is different because they have excavated it extensively. It's huge, but there are no modern houses built up there. So when you walk through it, the streets, and look at the, 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 the um, houses, and the temples, the lecture halls, you're seeing what they saw back then with no modern stuff added to it. And uh, we saw a picture of the amphitheater seating 25,000. One of the members of our team stood on the stage at the very bottom, and of course, it's carved out of a mountain, and I went right to the top and sat in the top tier. The one on the bottom whispered something. No microphone. We could hear it clearly in the top tier. That was phenomenal. That's where, for two hours, they yelled, great is Diana. Of the Ephesians or great is Artemis of the Ephesians and uh, we saw that ugly idol I saw her in my with my own two eyes because they have her behind glass in a nearby museum she's probably six to seven feet tall the one I saw was made out of ivory and I thought who on earth would want to worship this and then they have one post of the Temple of Artemis still standing. The others have fallen down and you can see them falling down, but there's only one still standing. The school of Tyrannus is there, of course, in ruins. Our tour guide as we walked through this city showed us both the good and the bad. Some of the good was the brothel, temples to the gods and goddesses, and also the emperors, Trajan, Hadrian. Some of the good was we went to the church of St. John the Divine, where underneath the altar the Apostle John allegedly is buried. We went outside the city for two to three kilometers where John's house is and where he took care care of Mary the mother of Jesus until her death. And you saw the house there. There's also uh, a church that the Roman Catholics have erected on that site. So many things, so many things. But just in case you think that the book of Ephesians was only written, people at Ephesus, because it says to the saints at Ephesus, let me remind you of what Paul said to the church at Colossae. He said, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read to the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So in other words, when Paul wrote a letter to a church, he addressed it to a church, but he also meant it to be circulated among all the other churches. So even though this letter to the Ephesians was specifically written to them, we can say it is also written for us. Then the greetings in this introduction. There's two greetings. One is in Greek, grace to you. And of course, that's the Greek word, charis. So that's the Gentile Greek world. The second one is, and peace. That is the Jewish Hebrew greeting. So it didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile in the church at Ephesus, you got a greeting in your own language. So let's move on to verse three, which is the introduction to this theme of the whole book and the text for today. Verse three reads, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so hopefully by the end of this sermon, all of our hearts will be full of praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for how he has blessed us with all these spiritual blessings. And in the book of Ephesians, there's many blessings mentioned. Today, we're going to briefly allude to eight. He chose us. He predestined us, redeemed, adopted, forgave, enriched, enlightens us, and seals us. And then the big question comes, so we have all these spiritual blessings. How do we get them? How do we get them? And that is of my outline today. How do we get these blessings? These spiritual blessings, number one, were planned by the Father. And 10 verses in our text deal with this one. Secondly, these tremendous spiritual blessings were accomplished by Jesus Christ, the Son. And one verse is given to that. And then lastly, these spiritual blessings were sealed by the Spirit. These are the last two verses in our text. Because this is so so profound and so deep, I'm going to use an extended sports illustration for all these three points. And I'm indebted to my pastor son-in-law in Philadelphia for helping me with this because he is a sports fanatic. And I checked out everything with him to make sure that what I say about sports today is indeed true. So thank you, Jason. First of all, our spiritual blessings from our union with Christ were planned by the Father for the one purpose of glorifying God. We're going to spend most of our time on this point. As I said, there's 10 verses devoted to this. And there's six different things that our text mentions that the Father included in his planning first of all this planning by the Father includes choosing us and what this teaches me is that he wants us verses 3 and 4 and verses 11 through 12 praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ who us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight verse 11 in him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory now god the father was looking for people to join his team. In our sports analogy, he is the team owner. He is also the chief scout. The role of the chief scout is to go around to the minor leagues, when we're talking hockey, soccer, football, baseball, and look at players in the minor leagues and see, oh, there is someone who has potential, I want him for my team and it is so incredible that before the foundation of this world before any of us were ever created god was looking down the annals of history and choosing who he wanted to join his team and he says i want you i want you to join my team i want you to be holy and blameless so that you can be for the praise and honor of my glory. So how did he go about choosing this team? With his mind's eye he saw. He saw us. He foreknew us from before the creation of the world. In fact, the message translation translates verse 12 this way. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he God the Father had his eye on us. That's him choosing us. He had his eye on us. Now, I went to Prairie Elementary School here, starting in grade five. And uh, some of us went to school early so we could play before school started. And this also happened at recess. In the fall, we would have the football season. In the spring, it would be baseball. Those of us who got early, whoever was there the best two players would always be captain and uh, two captains and then we would choose up teams and uh, I was never the captain and so the first they would do a a coin toss or something to choose who would get to go first and so whoever won he would go first and he would choose obviously the best player who was standing there again never me and then it would go to the next captain, and obviously, he would choose the next best player there. Again, never me, and then it would go back and forth, back and forth, and people would go and line up or stand beside their captain. They were being chosen. Well, as the pool of people got smaller and smaller, I would think to myself, man, I sure hope I'm not the last one. That would be so humiliating. Why would it be humiliating? Because someone has to be the last one. Because that says, you're not very valuable. You're less than desirable. And you probably feel worthless. There was one time that I can remember, and I don't remember the circumstances, but when the captain chose his first pick, it was me. How did that make me feel? Well, I felt on top of the world. I felt wonderful. I felt valued. I felt wanted, and I felt energized. I was going to do everything I could for him because he should have chosen someone else. But for whatever reason, he chose me. Now, I have something incredible to tell you. From before the foundation of the world, you were in the first place draft. You were his first draft pick. Not his second draft, not his third, not his 1,000th pick, not his 7th billionth pick. You were in his first draft. That should tell you something. He wants you. He wants you. This week I was reading This little magazine that came, Tribal Trails. It's a little magazine that comes out from the Canadian TV broadcast for First Nations people here in Canada. And someone wrote in, his initials are AM, or maybe it's a woman, maybe it's her initials, AM. Let me read what this First Nations person wrote. Thank you and God bless you for your ministry today. I caught in my my heart, it caught in my heart when your speaker said, we do not feel valued. I finally understood the problem. I know God values native young people as much as any of the other children. Thinking about that, I know so many young people do not feel valued. That is so sad. Now that mothers are out working more, Children everywhere have that problem. That is so sad. They don't feel valued, but they're in God's first pick. They might feel they're not in any of God's drafts. We are, but not them, but that's not true. Because God wants all men to be saved. All men, Paul wrote to Timothy. To be saved. So we're all in his first pick. So if there's anyone here today who is not a believer, I want you to think about this. The team owner and chief scout wants you to join his team. And he wants you so badly, he chose you before he ever made you. That should make you feel valuable and wanted. So let's go to my second point now. The planning by the Father includes predestining us. And this is him pursuing us. Verse 5. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will. Now that God as chief scout has picked you in his mind's eye and says, I want you, how does he go about getting us? This is predestining us, it's pursuing us. So, and he pursues us, and he pursues us, and he pursues us until hopefully we say, yes, we want to join your team. You see, because we have a free will. We have the freedom to say no. We don't want to be on your team. But even every time we say no, he still pursues us and comes after us. It's like a young man who's deeply in love with a young woman. And what does this young man do? He wants her. He pursues her. He just doesn't only want her, but he has to pursue her and prove to her that he wants her. So he goes after her. He woos her. He tries to convince her that she's the only woman in the whole wide world. He gives her gifts. He holds her hand. And he keeps doing this until he thinks there's a reasonable chance that when he gets down on his knee and says, will you marry me, she'll say yes. He pursues her. And that's what God the Father has been doing with us. He wants us so badly, he's pursuing us predestining us. And King Solomon wrote in Proverbs 30, 18, and 19 that the way of a young man with a maid is amazing. How a young man pursues. Let me read it. There are three things that are too amazing for me. for that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden that should give us some idea of how God is pursuing us you see because our default mode is we were placed on the wrong team when we were born we were placed on Satan's team we know his game plans and we have spent our lives playing his playbook so because God wants us he wants us to leave that team and join his team. So this brings me to my third point. How does that happen? This planning by the Father includes adopting us. And this is him teaming up with us. Verses 5 and 6. He predestined us to do what? To be, or be what? To be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and, and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he freely g- gave us in the one he loves. So in our sports story the team owner and the chief scout are on the lookout for players and the chief scout says I want him I want her he pursues they pursue course he has the ability to pay in, in sports that is for any player he wants, but somehow legally the players on Satan's team have to change and be put into a brand new team. In theological terms, we call this adoption. In family terms, a a child is adopted from one family and put into another family. That's called adoption. And so we get a new team because God wants to team up with us. We get a new boss a new team owner. And when we hit Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, we'll find out about the old team we were on Satan's team, dead in trespasses and sins. We followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We're now in a new family. Wow. God wants to team up with us. Which brings me to my next point. This planning by the Father includes forgiving us, and this is him sanctifying us. Verse seven, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We're gonna find out under point number two that this is all accomplished because of Christ's blood and his death on the cross but the father can forgive us based on the sacrifice of his son see when we join a new team we need a new uniform and now we are given the righteousness of Christ as our new uh, uniform but we need to be forgiven because we have the value system. We have the characteristics of our old team. We have the plays from the playbook still in our mind. And it takes forgiving on God's part to change us so that we become the values and the characteristics of our new team and what God represents. So sometimes we, we fail, and we use the old team uh, playbook. And of course, this jolts our teammates because they're not expecting that. They're expecting us to follow God's playbook, the Bible. And of course, this doesn't do us any good. So we should read and reread from the new playbook, which is the Bible. Memorize it so that we know what God wants us to do and be. And 1 John 1, 9 comes here, if we do make a mistake, if we do sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's God the Father who is forgiving us on the basis of what his Son has accomplished for us. Number five, this planning by the Father includes enriching us, and this is him sharing with us. Verses 7 and 8. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Enriching us. He wants to share with us. Because our new team owner is very, very rich as many team owners are today. And our team owner does something quite different than modern team owners. He wants to share his riches with his players. The profits that are made at the box office, they're not just going to him and him his family. He wants to share with the players. This is so amazing. Remember the parable of the lost son? The lost son went to a far country and he ended up working for a pig farmer. And even the pig farmer did not share anything with him. Verse 16 says, no one gave him anything. And when we're on the team of Satan, we're not gonna share. We're not gonna gain any benefit from that. But then he left the pig pen and he went and joined a new team, his father's team. And what did his father do? He lavished on him all these things he did not deserve. The best robe, a ring on his finger, sandals, a party, a celebration. His father didn't just chintzily give him a little bit. He lavishly gave on him. And that's what God the Father planned from before the creation of the world for us, to lavish his riches on us. And then my last point here, this planning by the Father includes enlightening us, and this is him befriending us. Verses 9 and 10, for he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Usually there's a gulf between the team owner and the players. He does not tell all of his business to the team players. That's for him to know. But with God the Father, it's so different. He wants to explain to us the mystery of his will. And what is that mystery? To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. There's no gulf between the team owner and us as his players. So he enlightens us. He's befriending us. Which reminds me of what Jesus said the night before his disciples. He said, I no longer call you servants or team players because the servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. This is so amazing. This is so amazing. And all this was planned from before the foundation of the world. But now we come to my second point. Our spiritual blessings from our union with Christ were accomplished by God the Son for the one purpose of glorifying God. Verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And in my sports analogy, Jesus Christ is analogous to the team coach. What is the role of the team coach? Well, the team coach is not the owner, someone else is. He is the one who does all the hard, hard work for his players. He is the one who comes up with the game plans that the team executes. He is the one who dwells with the players, that is, tabernacles with them. And is with them at all times when they are both playing home games and road games. He is the one who tries to unify the team so that they work together as one body. A unit. He is the one who sacrifices his own glory for the sake of the team. And then when the team wins the championship, immense honor and glory flow back to him, especially when he is named coach of the year. That is the role that Jesus Christ plays as our coach. One day he will be named coach of time and eternity, and glory will flow back to him. But how did he accomplish all these things that the Father planned for us from before the foundation of the world? The redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He sacrificed his own glory for the sake of his team. That's what our coach did. And it's no wonder, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood. None of this could have happened. The choosing, the predestining, the adopting, all the things in verse, in main point number one. None of that could have happened unless Jesus Christ had sacrificed himself and his blood had flown. That's why the Father's plans could come to pass. Well, since this is what our coach has done for us, he sacrificed for us, why is it that we as players give him so much grief and guff? Sometimes we don't follow his plans. We do our own thing, because we think that, oh, we can do a plan better than him. Shame on us. And my last point, number three. Our spiritual blessings from our union with Christ were sealed by the Spirit for the one purpose of glorifying God. Verses 13 and 14, it says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In our extended sports team analogy, who, what position on a sports team is analogous to the position or the role of the Holy Spirit? It's the general manager. The GM isn't the team owner, he's not the chief scout, and he's not the coach. Instead, he's the one who signs the contract with each player. He's the one who decides how much money each player gets now, and how much player they'll get, how much money they'll get in the future when they win the championship. He generally doesn't like the spotlight, so stays in the background. He looks out for the welfare of the team players, and even though he usually doesn't accompany the team on their road trips, He goes with them in spirit and is rooting for them to succeed in whatever their particular role is on the team that he himself has given to them. He is for them. He is not against them. And although there's not much fanfare with him he is very much an integral part of the team and he's usually working behind the scenes. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. He is the one, so to speak, who signed our contract. In theological terms, it's called the sealing by the Spirit. And what does this sealing mean? Well, it means two things. First of all, it's a marking. And a marking shows possession. Having believed, you were marked in him, verse 13 says. Now, we've already seen one marking, and that is a new uniform. We get a new uniform when we transfer to God's team, the robe of righteousness. But this second marking is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. He comes and indwells within us and lives with us. That's God himself living within us. And basically what this is saying, you are mine. You are mine. I possess you. Now, how do we get this mark? It says in verse 13, having believed, having believed. There is something we need to do to make it happen, and that's called belief or faith. We have to believe that when we say, no, we don't want our old team anymore. We want to say yes to God and join his team. We have to have faith that God will indeed do this. And when we have faith, he says, okay, I will mark you. And I will mark you with my Holy Spirit who will indwell you. And of course, as he indwells us, he begins to change us so that our values, our characteristics are starting to look more and more like the values and the characteristics of our team owner and our chief scout and our coach. Secondly, This ceiling is a deposit and it shows we will inherit from God. Verse 14, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I said earlier that our team leader is very, very rich. I said earlier also, our team leader wants to share his riches with us. There isn't this gulf between team owner and player. But how are we to know that with all his, in his riches, he's going to give some of that to us at the proper time? How are we guaranteed this? Because you know today many people do not honor their contracts whether it's a verbal contract or even assigned signed contracts, business people do not deliver on what they said they would? Well, how God? How do we know he's not going to do the same? The answer is the Holy Spirit is a deposit which gives ease. That what he promised us, part of the inheritance with his son, is going to come to us as well. We say, Well, maybe he will renege. No, because the Holy Spirit is God, God is immutable, God cannot lie, and so if he makes a promise, it will happen. We are guaranteed that. And we're guaranteed that because he is God. So, what have we learned today? From first, from... uh, The first 14 verses in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Well, hopefully we've learned three different things. We have tremendous blessings in Christ Jesus because of our union. And these tremendous blessings were planned by the Father. And you are in his first draft and he wants you. Secondly, these tremendous blessings from our union with Christ were accomplished by the Son, Jesus Christ. Through his death on Calvary was his shed blood that made all these plans possible. And thirdly, our tremendous blessings from our union with Christ were sealed by the Holy Spirit. So hopefully, this gives us a sense of awe. That was my purpose. For today, that we would have this sense of awe from the first chapter of Ephesians that all these things have been done, but they're not for our glory. It's so that we would be holy and blameless for the praise and glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.